0: The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. I think another reason we we don't really work out this theology is that uh, we have this idea that if we arrange everything properly in our life, like if we do everything right that it is possible to just avoid it. Avoid problems, avoid trials, avoid hardship. If we just are careful. Anybody feel that way sometimes? Um, Of course, if you've lived for very long, you know that it doesn't actually work that way, right? And it's certainly not what the Bible promises or teaches. And that's kind of the hard thing, is that uh, Jesus, especially in the New Testament, made it very clear that you will have trouble and hardship in this life. Right? Following Christ is not a way to avoid problems or difficulties or uh, pain or suffering. In fact, it's probably the way to invite it, which is <laughs> pretty much what Jesus said, right? I and mean, we, we just see it all around the world, all around us, uh, wars, uh, people fleeing, you know, every day from Myanmar because their villages are bombed out and their houses are burned and they are running for their life, right? It's hard. Uh, We see wars in other parts of the world. We see uh, people in Africa being uh, killed ruthlessly just because they are followers of Christ. Um, And, and of course, it's not only Christians who suffer. Um, Non-Christians also suffer, uh, sometimes because of their own foolishness and sin, but sometimes not, right? Um, One short uh, testimony of this in my own life, uh, I... Many years ago, many, 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 many years ago, I worked at this Bible camp, Camp Haji and uh, we needed a guy to come help build. The, the, the camp needed a lot of work; it needed a lot of fixing up. And so, um, this guy had come to Christ uh, a few years earlier at one of the churches that we were connected with, and had really, God had really got a hold of his life. He had had his life had been a disaster. But, uh, and almost lost his marriage. But he came to Christ and saw a great restoration in his family and had a very successful construction business. He was a very good carpenter. And he felt God calling him and moving him to sell his business and sell his really nice home in the mountains and move to this camp to, uh, to be our builder. And so he did that. He sold, he came, moved there. And just a few months after he moved there, he was killed in this horrible head-on-car car accident. And I happened to be involved. I was on the fire department. Uh, I was there at the scene, pulled he and his wife out of the car. His wife amazingly lived, but was, was, uh, her body was, was broken like almost every bone in her body, just, just crushed. And so she went through uh, years of surgeries and rehabilitation. And... Uh, uh, two boys, and that night I remember sitting down, having to tell these two eight and ten-year-old kids, "Your dad died in this car accident." It was horrible, and it just didn't make sense, right? Here's a guy who is taking steps to serve God. He's selling everything he owns to follow God, and and that's where it ends, right? And so we come to the book of Job. Um, uh, with similar thoughts, right? And we've all experienced hardship. We've all experienced loss and suffering. And, um, and I think the book of Job is important for us so that when tragedy strikes and things don't go the way we, we would, would hope, we, we are prepared to know how to deal with it and uh, not be overwhelmed or destroyed in the midst of, uh, of the horrible things that we can encounter in life. And so the book of Job was written to help us think through these issues. One commentator says uh, he would identify the purpose of the book as how to think well about God when disaster strikes. Now, to be honest, do you think well about God when disaster strikes? (laughs) Not always, right? Uh, So how do we think well about God? How do we keep our faith? How do we hold on to our faith uh, when life is falling apart? Now, the book of Job is not going to answer all our questions about suffering. Okay, so just a real quick disclaimer: doesn't claim that that it's going to solve all the problems of evil in the world, um, but it will help us uh, ask some questions and and try to get some some answers, right? It will help us think through uh, how a God who is powerful, who created the world, and who at some level is in control of everything, can allow hardship, suffering, and even evil into the world and into our lives, right? So it's kind of the questions. And we're not going to, like I said, we're not going to tackle all the questions at once. Uh, Just another disclaimer, the book is 42 chapters long. If I did even just one chapter a week, it would take us almost a year. We're not going to be talking about suffering for a whole year, so you breathe. uh, We're going to try to do this in about seven weeks. So we're going to take some big blocks. We're going to kind of survey This is not going to be a verse-by-verse study. That would be suffering at another level. (laughs) Uh, And if you've read through the book of Job, you know that part of the suffering is just getting through all these dialogue, right? We're not going to to do the whole thing, but um, I mean, verse-by-verse. But but as we begin, let's think about two basic questions. Today we want to think about two questions related to suffering. The first, uh, how are we trying to arrange our life to avoid suffering? What are you doing in your life to make sure you don't suffer? Like, how how does this work in your thinking, right? And a more important question is, is this really how we should be thinking? Is this really how you should be arranging your life? To be making sure you don't have problems suffering or pain, right? Is that a legitimate way to live life? Second question, when bad things do come into our life, how do we respond, how should we think about God? Uh, what should we do with the pain we feel in the midst of suffering? How do we, how do we deal with it? Where do we go with it? Right, so those are kind of the, the two questions we want to think about this morning. Um, so let's uh, read part of to. We're going to look at the first three chapters. We're not going to read all of it right now. We'll kind of catch up. Let's read the first part of chapter 1, uh, starting in verse 1, Job 1, 1 through 12. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord, and uh, wreaks havoc on Job's life. We'll read about that later. Um, so first things we, we want to look at, at Job, and we see uh, from this account that Job is two things. First, he is blameless, and he is also blessed, blameless and, and blessed, right? And um, what, what, what we what we see from the very first verses of this passage is that this idea of do good, get good. Okay? Do good, get good. Uh, there's a big theological word for this called um, ret- the retribution principle. But retribution is too hard to say. So we're just going to call it do good, get good. Okay? Do good, get good. And, and uh, people in everywhere in, in culture, uh, every religion really, uh, throughout all of time and history, have really held to this idea. And, uh, and and in fact, uh, n- not always the same. Doesn't always quite work out the same. But the same general idea that that if you if you're a good person, you you should get good things. Life should go well for you. Okay. Now, does anybody does anybody here just fundamentally disagree with that? Does anybody, would anybody say no? I want to do good, and I expect if I do good, bad things will happen to me. That's what I'm hoping for. Anybody? Anybody? Because you need help, right? Like if that's what you think, just want to say. You, you need counseling, right? This is kind of, this is kind of a given, an, an assumption that we as human beings make from every culture. And we see this uh, in Buddhism, right? This whole idea of karma. It's this idea that good karma means you did something good to, to earn or to get this good karma, and the result should be good things should come into your life. And of course, the opposite is also true, that if you get bad karma, if you do bad things, bad things will happen to you. And, and this uh, this is, like I said, it's common it 's true throughout um, most of the way most people think. I, mean, I do not know of any religion that would kind of go against this, like where they say, "You need to be a good person so that your life will be miserable and you're uh, miserable, and you'll suffer, uh, suffer a lot." although Jesus did come close to saying that actually um, uh, but, but the, even the Bible actually supports this thinking, right this idea that um, and in fact, it, it got worked out throughout much of Scripture in the Psalms and in the prophets, uh, in the Old Testament, even in the, in the law, this idea that, that this is how God works in the world. So even from a biblical point of view, there's some justification for this thinking, uh, that the righteous will prosper and the w- wicked will suffer. So, so it says in Psalm 145:20, The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. Okay, so there it is, right? Do good, get good. Do bad, get bad. Right? It's right there, Psalm one forty-five, twenty, And that's just one of many references. And certainly Job and his three friends, as we will see later, believed this principle. Now, not only did they believe it, but actually Job, in, the, in chapter 1 here, is really the poster child for this, this idea, right? He's like the poster child. And we see that kind of laid out in Job chapter 1. But there was a man of the land of us, his name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Job is a good guy. He is good, he does good. Everything about him is good. He is upright. He is blameless. He fears God. He turns away from evil. Like like if you have a daughter, this is the guy this is the guy you want your daughter to like, right? He's a good guy. Right? Now it's important to understand a couple things uh, of the book and of Job, the context here. Um, Job is not an Israelite. Okay, he, he is not a descendant of Abraham. Uh, he's probably not even you know Noah had three sons. He's probably not even in the line of the Israelites. He's probably in one of the sidelines, right? Uh, he is not a person who's living under the covenant uh, that God made with Israel at Sinai. He's probably lived long before that. Probably uh, sometime around the, maybe t- the time of Abraham or just after Abraham. Uh, he 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 does not have the law or the commands of God. So when it talks about uh, Job being upright, blameless, uh, fearing God, it doesn't mean that he is keeping the law diligently and perfectly like a good Jew would do much later. That's not what it means, right? Um, he, he is not... Not perfect in that sense. His righteousness is not one who's fully in the covenant, keeping the law. So his righteousness is much more like that of Noah. Uh, it's a righteousness that distinguishes them from the wicked world around them. So he's a good person compared to bad people. It doesn't mean he's without sin. He has, you know, sinless perfection somehow that he was like worthy of. Like, like he you know was without flaw, that's not what it means. right? It just means that he was really a good person. He, 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 he was a person of character and integrity. and And really the the important point here is that if if you believe this idea, do uh, be good, do good, that he was the kind of person that was good enough that he should get good. Right? He should receive benefits and blessings. He should be blessed. Like if we believe this principle, uh, he was the kind of guy that was good enough that he should be blessed. And so, so we see that um, uh, he was a good person. And, and, uh, and not only does the author here, uh, the narrator, tell us that, but it, God himself actually confirms it in verse 8. Even God says, The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Right? God says there is nobody else like him. Who's who's got such inter- integrity and character, right? And so, uh, so we would expect that he would be a very blessed man, right? And and that's what it says. He is a blessed man, right? He's got uh, lots of kids. He's got seven thousand sheep. <laughs> Sounds like a nightmare to me, but in that day, that was a good thing. Uh, that was good. Uh, camels and oxen and servants. He's a wealthy and prosperous man. In fact, it says he was the greatest of all the men in the East. So here's a man who's kind of, this was the, I don't know, the Elon Musk or Bill Gates or something of his, of his day, right? Super successful, super prosperous, super wealthy, super blessed, right? So it works, right? Um, And if we, if we think about this, don't we want life to work this way? I mean, really, we do, right? We, we want to we have this hope that if I do the right things, if I make good decisions, if I'm careful with my life, if I have integrity and character, good things are going to come my way. I'm going to be blessed, right? Um, and, and really, uh, Job, we find he takes us even, not only in his own life, but this thinking, um, this, this principle of do good, uh, be good, uh, get good, Uh, he he transfers it even over his kids. So in verse 4, we see his sons used to go up and uh, hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, like a birthday celebration probably. Um, And they would go up to their houses, and then afterwards Job would send and consecrate them. He would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For he said, it may be that they have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And maybe they said something foolish, maybe they drank a little too much and said... Ah, uh, who needs God, right? And that would be a curse, right? That would be dishonoring. So he would go and he would uh, offer uh, offerings. He would consecrate them, right? What, what is Job doing here? Well, he is living out this principle, right? He's going, I want my kids to be safe. I want them to be protected. So I'm going to do good even for them, over them, to make sure they're okay. And it seems to be working for uh working well for Job, right? He is the poster child for this philosophy. And it's working great, of course, until verse 6. <laughs> five verses into a 42-chapter book. This is not looking too good for Job. Um, and, and there's a challenge to this thinking. There's a challenge to this whole, this whole system. Right? So, verse 6, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came. Uh, and... Says, where, the Lord says, where have you been? And he says, well, I've been, I've been walking on the earth. I've been checking out. I've been uh, surveying, you know, up and down across the earth. And God says to him, have you noticed my servant Job? Like, you should be impressed with this guy. And, and, uh, and Satan answers and says, and here's the key question. and This really is the key question for the whole book of Job. right The question is this, does Job... Fear God for nothing. Does he fear God for no reason? Now let's back up a little bit and kind of get the, the picture here. Um, there's apparently some kind of heavenly council or board meeting, right? And now who are the sons of God? I don't know. If you really get bothered about who this is, there's lots of books you can read. Uh, bottom line is, it's, it's kind of a committee, a council. Whoever they are, if they're angels or some other spirit beings or people who have died and gone to heaven that God wants their advice, I don't know. Um, but but God has set up, God himself has called this council as a way to kind of report and and to, to uh, help God think through things apparently. Now, does God need this? No. Uh, and we'll talk later about kind of the way the, the literary structure of the book, not important now. But the point is, the important point here is that God is... Um, God is not afraid to put his character and his operation in the world and what he does to the test, right? He is, in a sense, transparent and accountable. Now, most of you, uh, whether you're, you work in a business or you work in a company, you work for a mission organization, uh, most of those are not necessarily run by dictators. And why don't we like dictators? Well, if you are the dictator, you do like them, Right? Because you have total control and you don't have to answer to anybody. right? That's what a dictator does. You just shoot them if they don't like you. right? God is not a dictator. Amazingly. And he could be. Of all the beings in the universe, God is the one who could be a dictator uh, because uh, he created everything. He made it. He owns it. He has the right and authority over it. But he doesn't operate that way. We see God... Uh, submitting himself really to a level of scrutiny and accountability and transparency and uh, and he's got this these advisors these these guys whatever they are these sons of God who who he calls together and and he gives them a voice and he gives them the opportunity to speak into what God's doing and so in this group is uh, this this dude called Satan now, uh, just just a, a little, backtrack a little. We, we know of Satan from New Testament theology as being this being known as the devil, a fallen angel, a bad guy, carries around a pitchfork fork with horns, causes all kinds of trouble, right? Uh, j- just so you know, that theology and that understanding of, of a, a being of evil was developed not long before Jesus really at the end or after the, the, the whole Old Testament was written. And Job was probably one of the very first books written, and they didn't have an understanding of uh, Satan being a personal being with the name, who was like the prince of demons. Right. So, uh, so where does the word Satan come from? Well, the word Satan is actually a Hebrew word. Satan is a, is a, is a Hebrew word that just means the challenger or the accuser. And as it's used here and in other places in the Old Testament, it's not a name. Uh, it's not even a position. It just describes what the person does. So like we would say, you know, the, the Mayban cleaned the house, or uh, the director went to the office, or the carpenter fixed the cabinet, right? The, the Satan, and literally in the Hebrew, it's literally the Satan. The Satan, the challenger guy, Right? Uh, so we don't know who this is. Could it have been Satan, the author of evil, and the guy with the horns and the pitchfork? Um, it could have been, but it didn't. It doesn't need to be. It's not relevant, actually, for the story. All right, uh, and and we find that actually his challenge is valid. Right? He's not trying, He's not trying to just cause trouble. He's making a very important point. Right? And and this is the this is the this is the problem. Right, this whole thing of do good, get good could be fatally flawed. And all he does is raises a very simple question that, that illustrates how this could go really bad and how this may not be a great idea. And so what he's doing here is he is actually not he's not criticizing or picking on Job, but he's actually challenging the way God operates in the world. He's he's really challenging God's wisdom. He's saying, you know, God, is this really a good idea? Have you thought this through? <laughs> and I'm sure God actually had thought it through, but, but that's, that's his question here. And, and here's, the, here's the question. He says, does, does Job really serve you for no reason, for, for no purpose? Is he doing all these things with no real incentive or motive of getting something out of the deal? Right? And, and here's the, 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 the disturbing question: Can a person be truly good and upright if their motive for doing good is simply to be blessed? Let me say that again. Okay, and think about this. Think about this. Are you really a good person? Do you really have true character and integrity if the only reason you do anything good is so that you will get benefits? Now you may be thinking, well, of course, (laughs) of course. Why else would anybody do good, right? Of course I do good because I want want the benefits, of course, right? Um, But the problem with that thinking is that in the end, that would be extremely selfish and self-serving, which by definition is not good. It's not good, right? It It becomes actually evil. And so the accusation here is saying, God... Yeah, sure. You, sure, you can buy friends. <laughs> yeah. Sure, he serves you. Because you, you're so good to him. Right? Haven't you put a hedge around him? In verse 10, haven't you put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? Aren't you protecting him in every way? Uh, you have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions and, and have increased in the land. His, his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. So basically, what the challenger here is saying is that there, there really is no good person. Yeah, sure, he looks good. He looks upright. But in the end, he is selfish and greedy, and he's only doing good to get good. He's not really good. He's actually an evil, wicked, and selfish person. He just knows how to play the game well. You know, and see, you know these people. Like, these are the teacher's pets, right? Right? Those are those people. You know them. Like like they are always kissing at the teacher so they get a good grade and they're so annoying, right? Now if you're one of those, I'm sorry. Sorry, right? Right. Um so, so what other what other legitimate could reason could there be? What would be the alternative to doing good? Well alternatively the idea would be that you do good for the very sake of goodness. You do the right thing because just because it is the right thing. Because good is better than evil. And ultimately to to honor God. That if you're God-fearing, you do what pleases Him. You do what honors God. You do it for God's benefit, not for my own. And in this case, it wouldn't matter if you were blessed or not. Right? You would do good whether it, whether it pays off or it doesn't. You do it because of good itself, because of the honor of God itself. Um, so this this is a, uh, an, really an attack on God and how He operates in the world, right? God and the challenger is basically saying, look, God, if you if, if if you bless people who are blameless, if you bless people who do good, you're just buying good behavior. It's not really, it's not, re- it's not real, right? Um, and, 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 and and in the end, that makes God an accomplice and of, of evil. You're just Fostering this system of selfishness and greed, right? And so, so the question is: God, are you really wise? Is this even possible, right? Are you really? Did you really think this out? So you see the question: Why this is important? And uh, this is a question way bigger than Job, right? Uh, and the sad reality is: There's only one way to find the answer to this, right? There's only one way, and that is what? Well, to take away all the blessings, right? That's the only way to find out what Job's true motive is, to put his goodness to the test. And so, of course, uh, that's what God uh, allows. God says, okay, uh, everything he has is yours. Just don't hurt him. And so we know the story. Um, Satan goes out and, uh, and it's horrible, all the things that happen all in one day. Uh, now there was a day when his sons were eating and drinking in their oldest brother's house. It was probably his birthday. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell on them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped you. Right? So the servants and the oxen are gone. While he was yet speaking, there came another that said, Fire fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. It goes even worse. While he was speaking, there came yet another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the serpents with the edge of the sword, and I alone have have escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, how can this get any worse, right? While he's still speaking, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Right? This, this is a really bad day. Right? Everything Job possesses, his family, his wealth, his servants, everything is gone. The only thing that he's left with is his wife. Which we'll see later was not a blessing, <laughs> um, as it turns out. Um, so so we'll come back to what Job responds but Job amazingly passes the test he does not curse God he actually blesses God we'll look at it in a minute um, so, so so, that proves it right that, that gets God and Job both off the hook see this does work Job did do good just for the sake of good not for its benefits uh, but the challenger is not satisfied with that right Because, chapter 2, again there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves, and Satan came, and God said, where have you been? He said, I've been walking on the earth. And God says, have you noticed my servant Job? Ha! There's none like him, blameless and upright. He passed the test. He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Go God, right? I win. See? I am right. Um... But Satan says, "Ah, Not so fast. Not so fast. Satan answered the Lord, Skin for skin. All that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh and he will curse you to your face. The Lord says, Behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. So so, so, so Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a broken piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Oh, you know, if, if, if losing everything was not bad enough, now he's inflicted with these tor- terrible, painful sores. We don't know what kind of disease it was, but it sounds horrible, painful. Uh, he, he, and he's on the ash heap. Uh, some people think he's on the ash heap because it, the ashes were soft and the most comfortable. <laughs> Maybe. Or it's because he's been kicked out of the city because he has a contagious skin disease, and the only place he can go is the, is the garbage heap. Uh, either way, this is not fun, right? Um, and it's important again to just see here that what is at stake here's not just Job's character, but God's wisdom. Does God really know what he's doing in the way he set up and runs the universe? And this is an important question as we go through the books this will become a returning question. Uh, is God really wise? Does he really know what he's doing? And the question is when you when you have pain and suffering in your life that is the question. Does God really know what he's doing? Is he wise? And when you're when you're really hurting what, what are some of your thoughts? No, God does not know what he's doing. Right? I have been good. I have done the right things. I have, I have I've done all the things that I'm supposed to. It's not supposed to work this way. Right? I'm not sure that God knows what he's doing. Well, how does, how does Job respond to all this? Uh, to all this trouble? Um. Well, it's it's amazing. Verse uh, 20 of of chapter 1, it says, Then Job rose, after the first set of uh, disaster, Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this Job did not sin." or charge God with wrong. Um, then after the second cycle, after he's struck with the, the plague of sores, uh, his wife said to him, she's such a cheerleader, do you still fat, hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. That's encouraging. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil or bad? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Uh, Job really does pass the test. Uh, and he shows that um, that he is going to be faithful to God. He is going to be a man who's upright, who fears God, who's blameless and has integrity, even when it does not benefit him. In fact, even when it's quite the opposite. Uh Some commentators have noted that taking away his physical um, possessions represented just removal of blessing. But uh, they said that ancients actually had the idea that uh, physical health, if you you experience sickness or disease, it wasn't just the blessing was removed, but it was that you were under a curse, right? That that something was wrong and you were actually being cursed um, with bad health. So both in removing blessing, but also even in what may for Job have felt like falling under a curse. Even in that, he, he upholds his integrity, and he uh, keeps his faithfulness to God. Uh, it's remarkable. And uh, the good news, there's good news in this for us. Because he passed the test, uh, God, in a sense, has permission to keep blessing goodness, Right? And in some ways, uh, this makes Job really a type of Christ, right? Uh, Job suffered so that we could be blessed. Like if he doesn't pass this test, then blessing kind of has to come off the table. That's like, I'm not going to bless good people because it, it has no benefit, right? I would be supporting their selfishness and their greed. Because he passes the test, we can be blessed for doing good. Let's hear it for Job. <laughs> Go, Job. Praise God that he did not fail, uh, and so he 's a, a type of Christ because he suffered. We are blessed. Um, so what, what can we learn though about his, his, his response well there's three things about his response that are significant. The first thing is that job and get this carefully, job acknowledges that God is ulti- ultimately responsible for everything. Okay, God is ultimately responsible for everything. Right, he says, he says uh, shall we not receive the good from the hand of the Lord and not the evil from where? From Satan? No. From the hand of the Lord. Right, to his wife he said, um, uh, shall, we, shall we receive good from God and not receive evil from him? Bad things from him? But this is important. This is important theology. And it's, it's part of what held Job together. Um, he acknowledges that God is ultimately sovereign over everything. Now, he's not saying that God necessarily was the direct agent of evil. And he wasn't, right? He's not saying, and, and we should not infer from this that there's not many ways that sin and other people's sin, and just the brokenness of the world, not to mention just the physical laws of the universe, can cause bad things, right? Um, If you jump off a very high building, when you hit the ground, it hurts. (laughs) It hurts, right? That's just physics. There's nothing evil about that. Uh, It's just the way it is, right? Um, But Job sees in it that God is sovereign over it all. If, If God has the authority and power to bless... But he must also be the one who's responsible for suffering, because suffering is ultimately just removing the blessing, right? It's just removing the hedge of protection. Uh, it's, it's, uh, and he sees God's hand as the one who does that, uh, not because he caused it all, but certainly he didn't prevent it. Um. Is, is it hard? Is this a hard one for you? This, this, this we struggle with this, right? Um. It's hard to think that God somehow has a hand in all the bad things that happen in the world. This, this may be, seem very troubling. Like it, may, it may make us feel like, what kind of a God is this? Right? And certainly the world uh, accuses Christians and accuses the Bible of this great moral evil. And they will say, if God is good, if he's really powerful, then, then why doesn't he stop all the bad things from happening? I wish the book of Job answered that completely. It, it, do, it doesn't, actually. Uh, it's actually a different question. Um, but, but let me just let me just say this. And I heard this uh, about a month ago. I was at a, a conference, a pastor's conference, and the speaker was an author. He's written commentaries in a lot of Christian books. And uh, he shared this story that uh, he got invited to this radio program, and he assumed it was to talk about one of his books that he'd written, you know, kind of a... Friendly. It was a Christian radio program, uh, and he gets on this radio program, and he he realizes after it's too late that he's been he's being ambushed, and he's known for somebody who believes in the sovereignty of God, and these two supposedly Christian people were attacking his notions of the sovereignty of God, and they were saying, "Can you do you really can you really believe that that if that God would let a Hitler into the world or God would let whatever other evil person that God's do you really believe that?" God's behind all that. And um, this is not what he was prepared for. And he said, you know, his mind's reeling like, what, what do I answer? And he's trying to you know, pray, God, help me. What do I say, right? Um, and, and this is what he came up with. He says, I don't know if this is the be- best answer, but, but uh, his response was, was this. Um, uh, is, is, is it any more comforting? Is there any hope or comfort if God's not Sovereign. Right? Is it better that God's out of control and all the evil in the world is, uh, is not under God's care, control? Right? Is that better? Well, I don't think so, personally. I would rather have a God who's powerful and sovereign, who somehow is in control of everything, than to know our God is limited in his power and he can't actually do anything about all the evil in the world. He's just as hopeless about it as we are. Okay? I don't find that comforting. It was interesting when my friend Steve, Steve died in that car accident I t- talked about. Um, uh, honestly, the, the most comforting thing in that horrible crisis was the, was this one thought. That it was not an accident. Right? It was not an accident. And there's so many things that... And you know, I thought through that day and I had seen him just just minutes before the accident and I, and I thought, you know, God could have made the phone ring and delayed him by a few seconds. A few seconds would have made the difference. Maybe two seconds would have, would have changed the whole outcome of that day. God could have done that. And he didn't. And the one comfort for me is knowing that God was in control. Right? I didn't understand it. I didn't know the purpose. I didn't know the meaning. I didn't know why. I couldn't answer any of those questions. But I knew that God was sovereign. And it was not just an accident. That God had numbered his days and God knew that that was the last one. Right? And his purpose in Steve's life was accomplished. Right? God was not scrambling, trying to figure out what to do because it was all out of his control. Right? And Job recognizes that. Right. Um, second thing, he, he holds on to faith. Right? He does not give up his hope and his faith in God. Job 1.20 Then Job arose, tore his robe, and shaved his head, and fell on the ground and worshipped. Uh, we see this as a, a response of grief. right? Shaving his head, tearing his clothes is just this picture of tremendous grief. But then it says he fell on the ground and worshipped. Uh, this is not worship in the sense that he started singing, Blessed be the name of the Lord. You know, that's what the song comes from, this passage, right? I don't think that's what he was doing. Uh, the word really has the idea of, of acknowledging and accepting something. Right? He bows down and he acknowledges and accepts that this is God's doing and he, he accepts it. Right? He, he has faith in the hand of God and in God's wisdom, even when it doesn't appear to be good. Right? He still holds on with faith to the wisdom of God. Um third thing that he does is he blesses God no matter what and this does come closer to just real worship right so the Lord gives the Lord takes away blessed be the name of the Lord he continues to fear God he continues to acknowledge the sovereignty and uh, right of God to reign and rule he still believes and trusts in God's wisdom and he blesses God now is this easy I don't think so, right? I don't think so. Um, this is great advice for us as we deal with the pain and loss of, of, of suffering and hurt and trials. And here's a simple question. Are we doing good only to keep suffering away and be blessed? Like, why are you trying to do good? Why do you read the Bible? Why do you pray? Is it kind of like your good luck formula to make sure God makes everything go okay for you? Right? Um, I'll be honest. There's been times in my life when that's been absolutely my motive. Like, God, I don't want you to hurt me. So I'm doing all the good things, He. I'm doing the good things, God. See? Right? Um, or is our motive to do good and honor God no matter what? Because it's good. Because it is right. Because good is good. And it's always the right thing to do, to do what's right. For its own sake and for God's glory. Um, Job believed uh, everything comes from the hand of God, the good and the bad, and he acknowledges God's hand in suffering. Can we do the same when life gets hard? Um, Last thing, if we stopped here, uh, I'm I'm afraid that... it's tempting to stop here because we're out of time, but but the one problem with stopping here is this: it, it makes it sound like this is easy, right? It's like it's like just buck it up, But of weaklings, right? You know, so you suffer, so you lost everything you own, all your family. Just buck it up and praise God. What's wrong with you, right? Well, that's not actually what the Book of Job is about, right? In chapter three, we see the other side of it. I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but let me just read a few verses. After this, Job opened his mouth, and he cursed the day of his birth. He does not curse God, but he curses the day he was born. He is not having fun. And he said, let the day perish on which I was born. And the night that said, a man is conceived, let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. He says, man, I curse the day I was born. I wish that day had never happened. I wish the sun had never rose on that day. I wish I had never been born. It hurts, right? All of the stuff that Job is going through, both physically and emotionally, hurts. And he wishes he had never seen life. And it gets worse. He goes on... um, why didn't I, I not at least die at birth? Okay, if, if I had to be born, why couldn't I have just at least died at birth and come out of the womb to expire? Right? Why didn't I die and, and be spared the pain of all this? Right? Now here's a man who's upright, blameless, who's approved by God, but he feels super discouraged, hopeless, like he wants to quit. Right? Uh, finally, the pain and despair of it all ends... Um, uh, he says, why is light given to him who is in misery, uh, a life to, to to the bitter in soul, who long for death, but it comes not? Right? He says, I am so bitter in soul, I am just longing to die. That's the best thing that could happen to me. Um, why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? It's interesting. Uh, initially, the accuser, the challenger says that... Uh, Job's life is good because God has hedged him in. It's a way of protecting. right? Now, now Job says, I hate that I'm hedged in because when I'm in the hedge, I can't see what's happening. The hedge is, is above his sight. He can't see what's going on. He can't understand why all this is happening. He can't make sense of it. And it leads him to hopelessness and despair, and he just wants to die. God, please just take my life. He longs for death, but it comes not. Um, I think it's important to see that uh, as, as we deal with this topic of suffering, God is not heartless. He's not saying, "Yeah, just buck it up, be stoic, don't feel, don't hurt." Uh, not at all. Right? Uh, Job is a man who, who feels tremendous pain and grief, and, uh, and and he just wants to die. Right? He, he wants to, to know the. He wants the answers. He wants the light, but they don't. The answers don't come. And so he just wants to give up. Um, So so how do we do? When we feel like this, when we are in such desperate places, when we are overwhelmed, when we are depressed, when we just want to give up, what do we do with this? Well, the good news is that we have some help. Job didn't, right? Um, We we do have a comforter. We do have a Savior who, uh, in the person of Christ... And Isaiah 53.4 says this of Jesus, I believe prophetically of Jesus, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Right? He was, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Right? Jesus endured uh, the most extreme suffering, the most extreme pain. Uh, and he did it to carry our sorrows and bear our griefs. And so because of that, uh, we find that we have a high priest who uh, is uniquely qualified to understand and have compassion on us when we are suffering. Right? Hebrews four fourteen through sixteen says that since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus has experienced uh, everything we have. He knows. He has carried our sorrows. He has borne our griefs. He has carried our pain. He has walked in our hurt. He has experienced it all uh, to the depths of his soul. Right? He knows. He he can sympathize with us in our weakness. Right? When we come to him with our tears and our pain and our hurt, he's not he's not like well I don't I don't really get it. No, he gets it. Right? He gets it. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This doesn't mean that we're, we can go to the throne and God's going to make all of our trouble disappear, wipe away all of our pain. He will. That's the promise of Revelation. But that's not the promise now. But He promises to give us mercy. And there we will find grace for help. We we will meet His grace. We will meet His compassion. We will meet His care. And He will walk with us. He will help us in our time of need. Let's pray. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand.